Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm Hugh. And I'm Joshua. You're listening to The Wrap Up, your fortnightly dose of international news. That's right, another two weeks have flown by just like that. And as always in this crazy year, there's been a lot going on around the world. For sure. So stick around for this fortnight to catch up on what you need to know today. سید ابراهیم رئیسی با 17,926,000 What you just heard there was the announcement that Syed Ibrahim Raisi, an ultra-conservative judge, had just overwhelmingly won Iran's presidential election. Now, when the news broke out, his supporters took to the streets to celebrate, with many chanting his name and some even shouting anti-Western slogans. For those who are unfamiliar with Iranian politics, the presidency is the second most powerful job in the land, subordinate only to Iran's supreme leader. And although the Supreme Leader calls most of the shots day to day, the presidency is still a powerful role. And the election of Raisi could change Iranian politics and its relationship with the rest of the world. Yeah, so who is Raisi and why is his election so significant? Okay, well, the first thing you need to know about him is that he is a hardline conservative and a really harsh critic of the West. So he belongs to a political party called the Combatant Clergy Association, which pretty much tells you everything you need to know. And some commentators say that he's in fact the most hardline Iranian president in recent history. For the last 18 months, he's been the chief justice of Iran's judicial system and also responsible for implementing Islamic religious law. Now, importantly, when Raisi assumes power next month, he'll be the first president of Iran to be under direct Western sanctions. During Iran's political revolution of the 1980s, Raisi sat on a four-man committee that oversaw the execution of about 5,000 political prisoners. Amnesty details how thousands of jailed political activists were executed or disappeared following a fatwa given by then Supreme Leader Ruhollah Khomeini. And it's also believed that he helped organise lethal crackdowns on anti-government protests that occurred in 2019. During those protests, at least 7,000 people were arrested tortured and sentenced to prison, all under Raisi's watch. And that led the EU and the US to impose sanctions on him for human rights abuses. But despite his brutal history, it seems as though he's pretty popular in Iran. Last I saw, he won 62% of all votes. Yeah, you're right. But that doesn't actually mean he's that popular. In fact, there's some evidence to suggest otherwise. So first of all, voter turnout was the lowest on record. Only 49% of Iranians voted, compared to 73% at the last election. And rising poverty, inflation, and the government's poor response to COVID are partly to blame for that low turnout. 
many Iranians say they feel disenchanted with politics. But there's another reason. There were signs that this year's presidential election was rigged. In the weeks before the vote, most of Raisi's opponents were disqualified. Several prominent reformists, including former parliamentary speaker Ali Larajani, were disqualified from running, and now the council, handpicked by the supreme leader, is accused of trying to fix the upcoming election. That meant that there was no serious challenger to Raisi at all. And in a sign of how upset some Iranians were at that move, four million of them cast blank ballots. And that means that 15% of all votes were for no candidate at all, which is a higher percentage than the runner-up received. He only got 11%. So what does all of that mean for Iranian politics then? Well, for the moderates in Iran who support reform, it's a really huge loss. So with the election of Raisi, the conservative faction controls every single level of government. And that gives Iran's supreme leader power to do whatever he wants, as Raisi is unlikely to challenge him. But it leaves the urban middle class, which is in favour of social reform, without a voice in government. And Raisi's opponents also worry that he'll increase crackdowns on journalists and activists. But Raisi himself has rejected those claims, and he says he'll focus on fighting corruption, reducing poverty, and combating COVID-19. So all of this comes at a time when the US is trying to renegotiate a nuclear deal with Iran. How might this affect those negotiations? Well, interestingly, Raisi has said that he supports a new deal. But his victory puts the US and the EU in a bit of a difficult position because under the terms of their own sanctions, they're actually not allowed to enter an agreement with him. So they might want to tweak those terms before Raisi assumes office. But even if a nuclear deal is passed, it doesn't mean tensions between Iran and the West will disappear. Iran is also under fire for its ballistic missile program and attempts to meddle in neighbouring countries. Raisi has suggested he's not interested in negotiating about any of those issues, and that's likely to only complicate Iran's relationship with the rest of the world. So keep an eye on the region, because Iran is likely to continue flexing its political muscles. Joshua, you may have heard some commentators talking about this in the news lately. In just a few days on the 1st of July, the ruling Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, is set to celebrate its 100th year anniversary. Now, while the celebrations themselves are largely ceremonial, they nonetheless mark a very significant milestone in both Chinese and global history. The CCP has maintained relatively firm administration over mainland China since 1949, And so it's safe to say that, for better or worse, the party has had a major impact on the course of Chinese history. Yeah, it certainly has. So can you give us a bit of a historical recap here? What have been some of the defining features of CCP rule in China? Look, one of the earliest defining moments in CCP history was when the party overcame its nationalist adversaries during the Chinese Civil War, taking control of the entire mainland and exiling the nationalist Kuomintang Party to the island of Taiwan, where it remains to this day. 
The communists established in Yunnan are stronger and more cohesive than at any time since their expulsion from the Kuomintang in 1927. Their leader, Mao Zedong, cleverly propounds the dynamic agrarian reform. Soft pedals is After taking power, the CCP was defined by its well-known leader, Mao Zedong, and a number of controversial initiatives such as the Great Leap Forward, the invasion of Tibet, and the Cultural Revolution. Almost anyone who was in power of any kind was denounced as a capitalist roader. The Mao era was followed by a period of reform which opened up the country and saw a historic violent crackdown on pro-democracy activists during the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. On the streets leading down to the main road to Tiananmen Square, furious people stared in disbelief at the glow in the sky, listening to the sound of shots. There was confusion and despair among those who could hardly credit that their own army was firing wildly at them. But China continued its economic rise, combining somewhat liberal economic policies with an authoritarian model of social governance. In the early 2000s, the CCP confronted the SARS virus outbreak in the country's south. Now the world would learn that a mysterious disease was on the loose in southern China. Before hosting the Beijing Olympics in 2008. More recently, as our listeners would know, China has been defined by its geopolitical ambition, continued economic growth, controversial crackdowns on dissent in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, and of course the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. So given the CCP has been in control of China throughout all of those events, it would be fair to say that the party has had a very complicated history and legacy. How much of that complicated history and legacy are we likely to see in the celebration ceremony? Well, unfortunately and unsurprisingly, it's extremely likely that only the positive elements of that history are going to be on display on the 1st of July. As we'll no doubt see during the historic ceremony in which Xi Jinping is set to deliver a major speech, the CCP will be presented as the natural protector of China's national interests and identity. And it's true that while there are many things the CCP will want to avoid discussing, there are several recent news events it can point to for inspiration. Only recently, the Shenzhou 12 spacecraft delivered the first three members of a team of astronauts who will complete the construction of China's first space station by the end of next year. Hey, welcome to our special coverage of astronauts' first day on China's space station. I'm Li Qiuyuan. Shenzhou 12, which is Chinese for divine vessel, was successfully launched from the Jiuquan Satellite Launch Center last Thursday. The three Chinese astronauts were entitled... Such events highlight China's new role as a global leader, which the CCP will obviously want to credit to itself. Mm, sounds like the speech will be an important listen for people to get a bit of a sense of where China's going in the future. But what's not going to be in that speech? What is the party going to want to avoid focusing on? Well, the party will be quick to shut down any discussion of its potential role in the outbreak of COVID-19, which many in the international community have blamed on a CCP cover-up at the start of the pandemic. Beyond that, with the last independent pro-democracy news publication in Hong Kong, Apple Daily, having just published its final edition after a CCP crackdown, the party will also want to shut out any dissenting voices. That, of course, also means that the controversial crackdown against Uyghurs and Kazakhs in Xinjiang will also be a topic of little to no discussion, with accusations of genocide and forced labour by party officials going unaddressed. So what do you think the ceremony symbolises overall? 
Look, I think the 100th anniversary is a perfect example of how complex China and the CCP can be. There are undoubtedly a number of huge issues pertaining to the CCP's record on democracy, global health, human rights, ethnic minorities, and military aggression. But at the same time, we also know that China is a huge country and a huge economy whose advancements in technology and things like space exploration make it impossible to ignore, simplify, or pigeonhole. So looking in the long term, the big thing to look out for will be the 100th anniversary of the proclamation of the People's Republic of China in 2049. Many analysts say that the party is aiming to cement Chinese global leadership by that deadline. So the next 28 years between now and then are going to be absolutely crucial as the CCP finds its place in the world. There will certainly be many more world-defining events to come. Hugh, our next story takes place in Spain, where a political decision has reignited calls for the country to be split into two. On Wednesday last week, Spain's Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, said he would use his prime ministerial powers to pardon nine individuals. El Consejo de Ministros de hoy ha acordado conceder los indultos a los nueve condenados del juicio del proceso. The nine people he pardoned were jailed for up to 13 years after they helped Spain's Catalonia region try to declare independence from the rest of the country. And before I go into why those pardons are so controversial, let me give you a bit of a quick background on Catalonia and its fight for independence. So, Catalonia is one of 17 regions in Spain, and chances are some of you will have been there. The region's capital, after all, is Barcelona. Now, importantly, Catalonia has long seen itself as different from the rest of Spain. It has its own language and unique culture. And so, because of those differences, the Spanish federal government has given Catalonia extra autonomy. For example, it's got its own anthem and parliament. And historically, that arrangement has worked pretty well. So in exchange for extra freedom, Catalonia has been willing to remain part of broader Spain. However, since the GFC, economic hardship has led to growing resentment among Catalans, who see the Spanish federal government as partly to blame for their struggles. And so in 2015, a pro-independence party won the majority in Catalan's regional elections, and that sparked some pretty serious conflict with the Spanish government. Catalonia has set a date for a referendum that will decide its future with Spain. The regional government says it will hold a vote on October the 1st on whether to form an independent state. The announcement has upset... The Catalan government called an independence referendum in 2017. Only problem was the vote was declared illegal. Spain's constitutional court has suspended the plans of a Catalan referendum on independence. On Wednesday, Catalonia's regional parliament voted to allow the vote on secession. The Spanish Nevertheless, the Catalan government persisted and it ended up holding that referendum. And turnout was really, really low. But among those who did come and vote, 90% said they wanted to leave Spain. And so in October 2017, the Catalan regional government declared independence from the rest of the country. They have passed the vote for independence here in the Catalan Parliament. Catalonia 
has gone its own way from Spain. The first time this has happened in Europe. The response from the Spanish federal government was swift. It invoked emergency powers, sent in police, and sacked the Catalan government. And there were allegations of police brutality, and it all became really quite violent. Amid the chaos, Catalonia's newly appointed president fled to Belgium to avoid arrest. And other members of the Catalonian government weren't so lucky, though. So nine of them, including the vice president, were arrested, convicted of sedition and jailed. And it's those nine leaders that the Spanish PM, just a few years later, has decided to pardon. Wow. So after all that chaos, why would Sanchez want to pardon them? Well, the short answer is politics. You see, Sanchez's government doesn't actually have a majority in the parliament. So to stay in power, he needs the support of, guess who, a handful of Catalonian MPs. And without their support, he can't pass budgets or laws. So it seems these pardons are effectively an attempt to win these MPs over. Right. So given that, what's the reaction been to his decision? Not good. So it looks like nearly everyone is against the pardons. Spain's other political parties have denounced the move as a betrayal and pledged to challenge the decision in the courts. And surveys show that their anger is largely shared by the rest of the population. Around 60% of Spaniards oppose the pardons. And after the decision was announced, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets to protest. However, believe it or not, even the Catalonian separatists themselves were angry at the pardons. And that's because the pardons are only conditional. So the Catalan leaders are banned from holding public office for life and can be re-imprisoned if they commit crimes. For example, like advocating for independence in the future. So those who support the separatist movement also took to the streets in protest. So Sanchez really hasn't pleased anyone here. And if anything, it actually looks like the pardons have inflamed the situation. Well, now they've got their leaders back, could this give new life to the Catalonian independence movement? Yeah, it seems it could. After the decision was announced, leaders in Catalonia pledged that they would hold a new independence referendum. And they also demanded that the federal government withdraw an international arrest warrant for the Catalonian president and allow him to return from Belgium. The Spanish government has said that both of those demands are out of the question. So despite the pardons being intended to act as an olive branch, it looks like the stage is set for a showdown sooner or later. So one day, if the Catalonian separatists have their way, we could see Spain split in half. After a 35-day manhunt, the body of far-right extremist Jürgen Konings has been found. The Belgian soldier who was on terrorist watch lists for his extreme views went on the running mate with a cachet of heavy weapons. As you would have just heard, Joshua, the body of a fugitive Belgian soldier was recently discovered in forests in the nation's north. 
And while a story such as this would normally struggle to make international headlines, the complex political situation behind the soldier's disappearance has become a source of much discussion across Europe and the world. You see, as that audio intro highlighted, the fugitive soldier Jürgen Konings was actually a member of the far right and was being monitored by Belgian authorities after being placed on an extremist watch list. His disappearance sparked a region-wide manhunt involving Belgian, Dutch, Luxembourgish and German authorities, which lasted 35 days and is estimated to have cost around 650,000 euros. Yikes, that's a lot of resources into finding one man. So why were European authorities so desperate to find him? That's a good question, and there are two main reasons why Konings was considered so dangerous. The first was his professional background as a combat expert. Konings had significant military experience, having served several overseas tours, where he specialised as an elite sniper. And this high-level military experience was made apparent from day one of the manhunt, when authorities found his abandoned car, which had been extensively booby-trapped and contained four rocket launchers. Indeed, Konings was believed to have possessed a small arsenal of weaponry while on the run. But the second reason he was considered so dangerous was his extremist political beliefs. As is the case across much of the far right in the West, Konings had a deep distrust of COVID-19 restrictions. And this actually led him to threaten the life of Belgian virologist Mark van Ronst on several occasions in the lead up to his escape. The virologist said that death threats were made against him online and that his family had been moved to a safe house. The first two hours of Koenig's escape even saw him search for Van Ronst in an apparent attempt to take his life. Yet perhaps most concerningly, even after threatening government officials, military personnel and virologists, Koenig's enjoyed surprisingly strong support from European extremists, with tens of thousands issuing their support online and some even gathering at the location of the manhunt. And that support is still coming in even after Koenig's death, suggesting that his views might be unfortunately more deeply held than some may have first thought. That's kind of terrifying, especially for everyone nearby. Is this the first time we've seen something like this happen in the EU? Unfortunately, not at all. Over the last few years, we've seen a growing trend of extremists and hardcore conspiracy theorists being discovered within the ranks of European security forces, including police, military and intelligence organisations. In April of this year, hundreds of former and active French military personnel issued letters to the French government warning of, quote, Islamist hordes. It warns of a coming civil war. Inflammatory claims in an open letter signed by around 1,500 members of the military, including 25 retired generals, are causing a stir in France. The letter calls for action. In Germany, meanwhile, several soldiers have been found with far-right Nazi paraphernalia, as well as personal stockpiles of weapons in their houses. In one particularly bizarre case, a German soldier based in the French city of Strasbourg was arrested after posing as a Syrian refugee and allegedly preparing to attack sensitive targets in Germany in order to incite an anti-migrant backlash. The case of Franco A is one that has gripped and perplexed the nation for the best part of four years. And he went on trial today on suspicion of planning to carry out several far-right extremist terror attacks. targeting people. And this, of course, just goes to show how strange but dangerous this new threat really is. With threats popping up across different countries throughout the European Union, do we know if there are any sort of links or organisations behind them? Yeah, that's been a massive point of debate across Europe. There are certainly informal groups of extremists that exist within European security forces. Some German commandos, for example, are reported to have given Nazi salutes at a private far-right gathering. 
But the jury's out as to whether organized groups of conspiracists exist within the European security apparatus. But this dilemma raises a serious problem for European authorities. And the question is, how do you enable security personnel to protect your population when the personnel themselves that you're training with deadly weapons may not be trustworthy or safe? And with that, that brings this episode of The Wrap-Up to an end. Stay tuned for next week's in-depth episode. I'll be chatting with Anna Jero, a researcher at UTS, about how climate change is influencing inequality and affecting the developing world. In the meantime, follow us Global Questions on Instagram or check us out on the Young Diplomats website. You can leave us feedback or suggest an episode topic. Links are in the episode description. We will see you in a fortnight.